is a special presentation of the Buccaneers Sports Network. This is the Jay and Keith Show. Two broadcasters, two microphones, and one meticulously scripted podcast. You what? Just kidding. Get it, J.K.? You get it. That's what I thought was so funny. It's not funny. Alongside Keith Brink, here's the voice of the Bucks, Jay Sandoz. All right, Jay and Keith on the final weekend, the final day tomorrow as we record on Friday of the Southern Conference regular season basketball, men's and women's. And so we're going to talk final weekend stuff. We're clearly going to talk ETSU stuff. We're also going to talk standing, seedings, other things, time changes. If you're not familiar with the bracket, we'll go over that as well. They have changed the... Kind of the pods uh, yes. for the brackets on how that works. Uh, Bracket we'll, pods. We'll talk about how we like it, don't like it. I, I mean, I do like it. It's just different from what they've been doing. So if you've been trained, uh, you need to untrain yourself. You must unlearn what you have learned. <laughs> or, or do that. Yeah. You get, do you know who that was? That was Yoda. Yes, very good. <laughs> I'm not afraid. You will be. Uh, you probably will be of all the bracket scenarios because there's still the possibility of a four-way tie for second in the SoCon and all the tiebreakers uh, that have to be sorted out from that uh, on the women's side. The men's side, I think there's a potential three-way tie for third? For fourth. Fourth. For fourth. So four, five, six. Correct. Um, yeah, there's a lot still uh, at stake. Although, ETSU and UNCG will know what they need to do when they tip off or shortly thereafter because we are they're going to play the last game of uh, of the 2023-24 SoCon men's basketball season on Saturday, a 4 o'clock tip. Everybody else is tipping it too. So if, uh, just to kind of jump right in here, if Mercer beats Furman, ETSU has to win to be the 7. If they don't, they're the 8. If Furman beats Mercer, which I think is likely. Call me crazy. I think that's a pretty likely outcome. If Furman beats Mercer, ETSU is the seven no matter what. If UNC, rather, if um, Chattanooga beats, are they playing Western, Western Carolina? Correct. If Chattanooga beats Western, um, then UNCG, I believe, is the three on the tiebreakers. Correct. Because Regardless of, of right. the result. Yeah. It doesn't matter. If, if Chattanooga beats Western, they would have swept Western. Right. And uh, because they've, they've, they've gone chalk on every other opponent as you start going down the list. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's pretty much going to be the, the, the deciding factor. Right. But if Western beats Chattanooga, that opens the door for UNCG with a win to snatch the two seed. Which I think would be well deserved, honestly. That team's played great most of the year. They've been they're playing really, really well in the last with two, three weeks. Mike Jones has them humming along as you would expect with as much experience as those guys have together. Um, with uh, Mikhail Brown Jones and the Langley twins and Donovan Atwell and there's just so much experience there, uh, to say nothing of the talent uh, that, that those four guys just by themselves bring to a basketball team. Uh, I think it would probably be richly deserved if they took the two seed and, and took that and leveraged it into a run. And and if UNCG were to be the two seed and ETSU were to be the seven seed, which I don't 
yeah, those, those are compatible, those are not mutually exclusive things, then ETSU would potentially see UNCG again in the second round of the SoCon tournament. Yeah, I'll tell you what's going to be interesting, too. UNCG, you know, they came in there last year playing some pretty good basketball, and ETSU, you know, knocked them off. UNCG had a shot in the buzzer to um, win it, I believe, right? They were down two, took try to shoot three. I was, actually, they were down one. He took a three to win the game. Yeah, Kobe Langley in the right corner, and he missed it off the back of the rim, and ETSU finally caught a break. As you put it, ETSU finally got one. Yeah, it's, it certainly felt like it. Um, and Kind of similar situation this year. UNCG, though, actually has a better shot at a higher seed this year than what they did last year. And, honestly, they've kind of been reeling a little bit. And so they're trying to get the, the ship right. And ETSU kind of went to more pick and roll, didn't do as much play call heavy stuff last game, and kind of let, you know, Peterson kind of, kind of run the show and, and kind of let the guys just go back into some motion and kind of free flow. And so – see how that how that kind of plays defensively you know at home especially they've been kind of locked in and so be curious to see how uncg kind of uh, how they work against etsu's defense and then on the flip side how does etsu handle the pressure because they did not handle that pressure well in the first matchup lots of turnovers and points off turnovers and easy buckets and you know karan boyd was It, w- well, it wouldn't have been a factor because ETSU had a hard time getting the ball across half court, which I'm not sure how much you rely on Gron Boyd to dribble the ball. Now maybe you can throw some passes. And stuff. But I thought ETSU against the Citadel did a great job throwing that around. Boyd did play in that game. He had four points and five rebounds in 27 minutes. That was the last game he played before he got hurt. So, or before his injury knocked him out of the lineup. But pr- he was probably already playing hurt at that point. Okay. So, Just based on the nature of his injury and that situation. You know, you look at, uh, so anyways, I, I think it's going to be an interesting game, and depending on UNCG and, and then it gets down to the tournament time. You know, but it's also interesting because if Chattanooga, uh, you know, does knock off Western Carolina, they would fall to 10-8. and eight. Uh, Furman wins, that'll put them 11-7 and seven, um, against Mercer, which is what ETSU fans are kind of pulling for. But if Furman doesn't, Mercer ends up pulling out another win, and they, they kind of pull out wins we don't think they're supposed to. They go to 10-8, and eight, and Wofford likely beats VMI, especially if Watkins doesn't play. Then you got a three-way tie there for four through six, and basically trying to figure out who doesn't want to be, you know, then you get a matchup between two of them, the other one falls to six to play the UNCG or Chattanooga. You know, the only thing said is Sanford's one, VMI's ten, Citadel is nine. Everything else is a little bit up for grabs. The two threes up for grabs, four, five, six could be up for grabs. And, of course, the seven, eight seed up for grabs. So it's it's about how it should be uh, when you get to the conference time and, and it goes. And, you know, Sanford's had to play some games without uh, some of their key uh, players. Again, no Achor Achor, uh, no Stanton McCray. I think Campbell missed the last game. So a lot of moving pieces and parts uh, Sanford, how healthy will they be? Are those and those guys are hurt, so are they going to be back in time for the conference tournament? How does that change things? Is that clearly just a one-off uh, against the Terriers? Now for the Terriers, it's great because they get in any tie-break scenario and they split with Furman. I think they split with Western as well, and uh, 
Furman and Western split. So the number one tiebreaker is going to go to Wofford. Wofford can actually come out of this thing in a few weeks ago where it looked like they were going to maybe fall into that, that seven or eight slot. All of a sudden, end of the year, they get a little hot, get a little help from uh, Chad and Mercer, and then they've climbed all the way up to the four seed. So it's just interesting to see how it goes and then, you know, who's going to get hot for those days? Who's going to be able to play and get enough? Is it going to be a defensive-minded team? Is it going to be the scoring of Sanford, which has really been their bread and butter? They've had a couple of, you know, again, they played that last game, but they didn't have three players that I think we all can agree are are pretty pretty good players. So – and honestly, the funny part is, if you look around the league, Western Carolina has the longest win streak in the conference at two. <laughs> and nobody has a two-game lose streak. Well, I take it back. VMI has an 11-game losing streak. Other than VMI at 11 losses and Western at two wins in a row, everyone else has either won or lost their last game. Nobody has a streak going. So if that yeah. tells you anything, Keith, about you know kind of how the – conference has gone along, uh, and, and, you know, it's been ebbs and flows because Wofford got off to a hot start, and they kind of cooled off in the middle. Now they're coming on as of late. Western Carolina, same thing, hot start, cool in the middle. Now they've won some as of late. UNCG was kind of pressing Sanford for maybe that number one slot, and they've lost, you know, two of the last four or three last five, whatever it is, and then, you know, Chattanooga's kind of right there, and then, you know, they've lost a few kind of head scratchers. So, it's, it's, it is interesting. We'll see how it goes. But senior day for ETSU, there'll be two guys honored. Ebi Asamoah, who's a grad transfer, who will be out of eligibility. Right. And then Jaden Parker, which has thrown everybody for a loop because everyone just keeps telling me, I thought he had two years left on the camera. Well, he did. And we've said it on the podcast. I've said it on the broadcast. He's just he, he's had enough of the college life. He wants to go make some money, try to play professionally. Uh, overseas probably the, the yeah, best shot so. for him, would you imagine? He's not going to get a look at the NBA, so – I, I would say Northern Europe or probably Japan, and you can make a good you can make good money there because they pay for your apartment and your car. So uh, you basically like the money that you make is pure profit. And also, most European countries, I believe, and at least this is the case with soccer, is your salary is after tax. You like that? Yeah, that's not so bad, huh? That's like well, what you agree to in the contract is the number that you actually get, and the taxes are all. Interesting note there from Keith Brake at the Duck Notes. Uh, so I have a lot of those. I want to talk about the bracket. I know you do. I want to talk about the bracket. Oh, I was waiting for you to just brush right over that. Any acknowledgement at all just sends me like, I'm, uh, oh, boy. I'm, now, now, I'm off, now I'm off on a rabbit hole. I am the smartest man alive. It's always whoever sits in that chair. Isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it? Admiral House the Khan. <laughs> so on – the men's bracket, and it's going to be similar on the women's side. Yes. But on the men's bracket, it's going to be the same setup Friday as it's always been. Friday, 5 p.m. is the 8-9 game. 7.30 or thereabouts. It's 8-15. The, the, the 7-10 game. Then on Saturday, there is a change. So normally what's happened in the past is the 1 versus the 8 or 9 has been at noon. That is the same. At 2.30, normally – has been the 4-5 game, and then they would play the next day on on Sunday. That has changed. They have gone with basically straight seeds will dictate time. So the better seed you are, i.e. the one, 
you get the earlier time of noon, and now the two seed will play at 2.30. So before fewer 7.10, and my guess is because there have been a lot of upsets from the 7.10 over the two, a lot more than the 8.9 over the one, that they've made a decision instead of going from 7.30 to 6, the next day they're going 7.30 to 2.30. So less rest, less time to recoup. So the one, so the 8-9 winner from Friday will play the number one seed, Sanford Bulldogs, at noon. And then whoever is the two seed between UNCG and Chattanooga will get the 7-10 winner at 2.30. Then the three seed will play at 6. And to get in the 4-5 game, you're at 8.30 at night. And then you're going to turn around at 4 o'clock the next day and play the team of won the one versus eight nine who played at noon so then it's a little more traditional because there's only a couple of games right <laughs> the one seed will play the four o'clock assuming they move on and in theory the two seed or three seed whoever moves on from there or gets upset whatever that'll be the 630 game so mm-hmm. there's a little bit of a slight change we'll talk about it's it's, it's exact same on the women's side so and we'll tell you about that because it looks like the women are probably going to be in the four or five. I don't want to quite get there yet. But we'll get there in a second. Yeah. So that's sort of the change. So I, I tell you, I tell you this: if you really wanted to give the one and two an advantage in a ten-team league, I feel like you could just give them the double bye instead of trying to shuffle times around and have everybody else like have an eight-team first round and a four-team second round, and then you have two teams in advance out of that that play in the semifinals with the one and the two. So that would be like the uh, OVC, I believe. Yeah, it, it's similar to the WCC where the one gets a bye to the semifinals. Like I, I would, I would honestly, I mean, there's no reason that a conference tournament has to be a conventional format. If you're trying to put your best foot forward as a league and you, you want to manipulate your tournament to try to give the one seed or the two seed a true advantage, I think that's the best way to do it is make is, is allow them – to play significantly fewer games than every other team in the conference on that tournament weekend. But that's neither here nor there, I guess, right now. But, but as, as it stands right now, this is, I mean, if, if you're going to keep this format, then this is the best you can do is, is moving the time zone. So what I'm trying to tell you is Friday night, no, no, it's a great point, because Friday night is going to be, ETSU's going to play either 5 or 7.30, and they're going to play the first pod on Saturday, either at 12 or 2.30. Correct. So make note of that. Mm-hmm. If you're going to go back and forth, and again, if DTSU, whether they're the one or the, or the, I'm sorry, the seven or the eight, I mean, you just got to know what time it is. But beware, you will be playing in. Uh, now, again, if you were able to pull off that upset, you get a ton of rest if you look yes. at it that way. So you may go two back-to-back, but then you will get a lot of rest going into the next game and have an advantage on the back end. For the I'll also say uh, the women's semifinals are that day, so I would prepare to bake in probably an extra 15 minutes a game for each game that's played ahead of you. I'd say the men could probably bake in 45 extra minutes and be like, it's, we're going to go 8-15 on Friday night. Women's basketball, that's supposed to be a – the 4-5 or five is supposed to be a 5.45 on Thursday. 6.30. Well, there's a huge break. Just the nature of it, yeah. Yeah, but Friday, like, the women's game would be over, give or take, 3.30 or 4. The first men's game is going to start till 5. So there's a mm. – they've built in an hour and a half. It probably, in probably still, like, 
That ends at one. I mean, so if that started, it's at supposed to. Okay, okay. It's supposed to start at one. So it starts at one thirty. So let's say it even went to four o'clock. The men's game doesn't start. The first one doesn't start till five. Okay. Yeah. So, so that, on that's Friday, you're okay there. Uh, now on going back, so let's go ahead and make that transition. Thursday is just roll right through. It's like we're gonna start and at I have eleven. No idea why they do that? We're gonna start at eleven and we're gonna go till we're done. And they only allow. They're, they're banking on an hour and forty-five minute game. Because there's there's a thirty there's a thirty minute window in between. Brisk. It says it right here on the little asterisk. It's thirty minutes between games. With, with the with the media timeouts that um, get, I'll, I'll say this like I mean, my experience at North Dakota State, the media timeouts were much shorter. They were ninety seconds as opposed to two and a half or two uh, in SoCon, and that adds up. That has a cumulative impact on the length of a game. We could get games over in an hour forty in the SoCon. You can't, or in the in the Summit League, you can't do that in the SoCon. Not not with the way, not just with the TV obligations. You have to fill the way the inventory is set up. You cannot do it. It's a lot. Yeah. So it's and, it's and at least in between. Yeah. Is, I mean, just to to set up a game two hours and fifteen minutes from the tip of the other one is ridiculous. So. It's a suggestion, right? The 11 a.m. game will start on time. The 115, no way that will start on time. It's probably 130-ish. Then the 330 now gets moved to 345 or 4. And now the 545, you're looking at 630 to 7, yep. give or take. Yep. Well, remember last year we had, what, uh, like an hour and 10-minute pregame show for the women's game, uh, the 3-6 against Sanford, because uh, UNCG and Mercer went to overtime. That's right. You know, yeah, factor in overtime. And those games are longer because it's people's last game, potentially. So the fouling to try to Extend, pull off yeah. a miracle, it right. always happens where right. Right. in a regular right. season right. game it won't. You're down 12 with 25 seconds to go. A lot of teams just you dribble out, you move on. 12 in a conference tournament 25 seconds ago. You foul. You're you going to foul, yeah. and, it, and you're going to lose by 20 because you don't yeah. care. Last game of the year, Brent. Can't let anything back now. So, so that's it. Now, as the men, the 1-8 will be the first game at 11 o'clock, then the 2-seat at one fifteen, then the 3-seat at 3-30. Again, I'm saying let's print it on the sheet. It won't be there. And then the 4-5 game at 5-45. And why will we keep hammering at 5-45 time? Because, Keith, yes. if I understand this on the women's side, unless Western Carolina pulls the season sweep over UNCG and ETSU, Knocks off uh, Furman. Furman. And Samford beats Mercer. If those two things happen, ETSU would be out of the 4-5 game. Yes. Other than that, pretty much every scenario we could go over puts them as the 4-5 seed. Yes. Everything, yes. If there is a four-team, eight and six, uh, at this point, ETSU would be the five. Uh, if there is a three-team tie at eight and six, ETSU would be – the four, so you'd be in the four-five matchup either way. But if Mercer and UNCG both finish behind ETSU by a game, at least a game, then uh, because UNCG has a win over Chat, and which ETSU went 0 and 2, and Mercer has a win over Wofford, which ETSU went 0 and 2 after last night. So ETSU needs both of those teams to lose, and they need to beat Furman to get into the 3-6, which will allow them to play a little bit earlier in the day. Uh, otherwise, we are going to be prime time bucks on Thursday night. Also, 
ETSU can't get to the six. So even if no, they because they swept Sanford. Sanford, they've right. got the tiebreaker. They right. get any three, or get a four-way tie. Sanford be the six because they don't hold any tiebreaker over Mercer, UNCG, or ETSU at that point. So, uh, long story short, more than likely ETSU is going to be in the four-five game. Barring again what we said, the only scenario that that we have come up with, and we feel like we're pretty smart at this, the only scenario where ETSU would get out of the four-five game. They beat Furman, Sanford beats Mercer, Western pulls the miracle on the road in Fleming Gym over UNCG. That being said, ETSU had a heck of a ball game first matchup versus the Furman Paladins. They will need to do so again because certainly they would love to be hitting uh, on all cylinders going into the conference tournament. And then next week, once you had success last year, obviously getting uh, uh, to the title game. So ETSU, tough game. Last night we recorded Friday, third quarter, heck of a third quarter, and then kind of that dreaded fourth quarter came into play. Yes. Yes, it did, and it was not good. Um, and that was – that's tough for um, ETSU to take. I mean, you're shorthanded, you're in there, you take the lead, you've got the fight going, and it just – I mean, it, it was a pretty big deficit early on. I mean, it, in the first quarter, Wofford had more free throws than field goal attempts. That's tough to come back from, even if you don't. Even if you don't have any, and I think they only took three before ETSU started fouling in the last minute. I think they only took two or three more free throw attempts the rest of the game. Um, but that just put Wofford in a position where they could lead by single, day, high singles, low doubles, most of the way. They had the lead, and ETSU just. With, with so many injuries, you know, Kendall Foley in particular wasn't on the trip with an illness but has also had uh, other injuries that have piled up on, on what could have what should have been a, a major uh, milestone season for her um, without the explosiveness, her ability to get to the rim and finish the way that she does. ETSU didn't have a whole lot. Um, it, was, it was tough to, to just get buckets and grind their way back in. You know, I think it was the third quarter did ETSU win the first time against Wofford, and then the, this time it was the, the fourth quarter. Again, just came down to making shots. Mm-hmm. I mean, third quarter, ETSU, four of six from three, 58%, 59% if you round up from the floor, but then 0 for four in the fourth quarter from three, just three of nine um, from the floor, and you're tough. I mean, you talk about they were able to get some free throws late, but, I mean, when a team hits more free throws than you attempt, we've talked about that a lot, 18 of 21. Terriers, ETSU, seven of ten. So, uh, yeah, some, sometimes numbers can be deceiving, but in this case they're not. I mean, getting to the free throw line, the foul trouble, ETSU already shorthanded, missing players, and, again, a fourth quarter. I mean, just not particularly ETSU's uh, best quarter. Now, I was impressed with ETSU being able to be dominant on the glass. That's something, you know, or at least on the offensive end, if nothing else. The 10 rebounds, very efficient, 11-second chance points. I like some of the work they did there, especially, you know, given those second opportunities to be able to put the ball uh, in the hoop. They had more points on turnovers, points in the paint, or more. I mean, some of these things, you know, just right there, I just think it came down to a couple of things, uh, free throws being the most. Are you working on something over here? What you got? I'm working on tiebreaker scenarios. Um, I see you doing math. Yeah, it's better da- you I, than I, me. I know it's it's dangerous, but um, you know what? We're gonna we're gonna talk about something else. 
TSU baseball doubleheader uh, on Saturday, tentatively scheduled against uh, Wagner. And Wagner, I think, is okay this year. Um, I certainly, I've heard uh, Micah Butel, our marketing director, is obsessed with Wagner's uh, white uniform with their home white, quote unquote, because it's actually white above, like, midsection, uh, middle of the chest up. It's white. But it's green on the bottom, and it's the New York City skyline. Supposedly as viewed from the Staten Island campus of the Wagner Seahawks. So I, I know about that. Uh, but uh, Wagner, usually an okay team from the Northeast. Uh, we had a good one in last week, and Ryder swept them and uh, lost uh, the bullpen day to App State on Tuesday. Bats were all right continue to be all right and do some okay things and, and hang in there, punch, counter, punch, and do what I think they're going to need to do to win games. And the question is, you know, what does the weekend staff look like? Can ETSU deliver in a weekend setting consistently? And the Tuesday games are nice to have. You know, it would have been awesome to beat Tennessee. It would have been awesome to beat App. But you're really more concerned about can you win on a weekend and can you set your guys up? to be successful consistently on weekends throughout the year. And so this is a situation where ETSU is going to face a little bit of adversity. You're going to have to move a Friday guys back a day. I guess you give your bullpen extra – you give some guys extra rest, guys that threw on Tuesday have an extra day. Uh, your starters have to – or your, your uh, primary pitching options, because usually at this point in the year they're piggybacking a guy on a starter that's going four innings maybe or five at the most. It's an extra day for them – to rest, but it's also an extra day that they have to wait, so they're a little out of sync maybe. We'll see. Uh, but ultimately, I think this team is still in a pretty good spot. I think they're going to capitalize on the opportunity presented this weekend if they do get on the field. And they should get on the field uh, at Thomas Stadium sometime on Saturday, and then definitely we'll have at least one game on Sunday when the weather looks much better. Well, Wagner would love to play somebody that's not ranked in the top 25. They open the season three games – at number 15, North Carolina, then three games at Texas A&M. So number 15th and number 8th ranked teams in the country. Then they played Seton Hall uh, from the Big East, uh, who is out to a 5-2 and one, no, 5-2 start. So Wagner's 0-7, but the same token, they have played six top 15 teams. Or two teams that are in the top 15, I guess probably need to work it that way. Six games within the top 15, and three of those within the top 10 of Texas A&M. So it's a little hard because, again, I've got a buddy who watches a lot. Oh, yeah, Wagner out here, they can't. I'm thinking, well, seeing who they have played, because that is about as difficult as a schedule as it has to start. That's off. formidable. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Incredible. So, ETSU, you know, they've been hitting the ball. Uh, team batting average. Cameron Cisneros is fantastic. Um, Nick Iannatone's got some real power in the bat this year. I know, I think he had. 
uh, what, like three or four home runs all of last season, and this year has been off to a really solid start, and the ball is carrying for him, especially on a clear day at the Tom. You know, it can be the, the ball can really get out, and I think the fact that you've got so many older players that have been through either Juco ball or uh, just been in college baseball for quite a bit, those guys can really put some power behind the bat now where – and, and, and they've adjusted over the period of about a decade since the bat standards were changed when – I mean, you remember you and I used to go out to – and John Stevens, we all used to go out to uh, the Hojo, as you like to call it, uh, the artist formerly known as Cardinal Park, which is now the TVA Credit Union Ballpark. Don't call me on that. Uh, over on Legion Street, and Paul Hoyleman and Bo Reeder and Kerry Doan and Derek Trent would just Matthew Scruggs just send the ball flying because it was. Troy Mendez would give you ten homers a year. Yeah, because uh, the bat was basically just a giant aluminum bazooka. It was you could you could launch it to the post office uh, over the left center field wall out there, and that when that changed. The numbers went down for a little bit, and now they've started to creep back up. And ETSU, I think, very much leans into being a power team. Having older players helps because you've got more physically mature players, so they can hit the ball a little bit harder, and that extra power means more doubles, more homers, more offense. More offense, I think, has been helped out because they've been much more patient at the plate early on this season. So 51 walks compared to 43 strikeouts. That's one thing Wagner has struggled with. They've already given up 57 free bases, uh, 57 walks, and just 40 strikeouts. So not a team that particularly – again, it's hard to see what the the staff's going to do, again, when they play some of the teams that they have played. But in the same token, you know, uh, throwing strikes is still throwing strikes. And so ETSU would love to continue the the streak of winning some of these non-conference series early, kind of stacking some dubs what they can do. I'm trying to figure out the staff. And again, midweeks now, it's just a change. We're talking about that in the hallway for a week or so, or this week, I guess. About in the old days, you know, you, you kind of had four starters. You had the three weekend, you had a midweek guy, and you just try to go. Now everything's staff thing because everyone's more concerned, as it should be, with weekends, and especially getting the league play and trying to stack up the wins there. That you know, you could see both. You could see 18 pitchers in, in some instances where guys literally just roll them out through one inning at a time, or maybe somebody goes two innings and somebody goes no innings. But somewhere around there, you're going to see a lot, a lot of arms being thrown. But I love the makeup of the team, and they've done it, a, you know, really a few different ways. I mean, this is not a team that's just going to run, right? This is that Coach Panucci is not a, a uh, bun over, steal an extra bag things it's, it's a lot of mall ball you know substantial mm-hmm. station you know hit extra base hits home runs things like that 12 homers already in the season 22 doubles throw in three triples I mean as a team they're hitting 310 already this yep. season so I mean they've got some solid numbers and I would like to think that Cody Miller and Ashton King who hit the ball pretty well last year are going to come around yeah they've been off to a bit of a rough start uh, offensively and, and I think third base is a position where you expect a little bit more consistent offensive contribution. Shortstop, you can kind of live with it. Um, and it, so if, if the bat never really comes around for Ashton King the way it did in the Seton Hall series last year when he had, what, uh, three home runs and eight RBIs in a game, uh, then it, it, it's okay. You know, as long as he is a, a, a contributor consistently on defense, 
And then they've got the platoon going at second base with Cooper Torres and Noah Gent. Uh, Cisneros is going to hold down first. Then it's going to be uh, McCarthy and um, Noah Webb behind the dish primarily. You see Jakob Ennison right. Paul Meese will play center. Tommy Barth will play left and center. Uh, this is a, a team that I think has a pretty good mix of players across the board where, like you said, if a couple guys are slumping offensively, as long as it's not Cisneros, uh, I think they can they can kind of pick up some of that slack. Uh, because if Cisneros is slumping, then the power really starts to fade in this lineup where Jakob Ennis can hit it a little bit, Jen can hit it a little bit, Webb can hit it a little bit, but um, – guys don't have to worry as much about Cisneros. They can really attack some of those hitters, and that hurts. Uh, that, that hurts the whole lineup. So you want 22 to continue to mash, and if he does, I think they'll, they'll be just fine. Defensively, um, not the cleanest they've ever been, but they've been good enough to get the job done, and I do think that's something that as particularly – uh, the infield just gets their timing back down because fall ball is different. It's it's a different pace. It's a different atmosphere. You try to replicate what it is when you have live games and you're going in there against a team from another town that has no idea who you are and just wants to beat you as badly as they can. It's a little bit different. It's a different environment from fall ball, and you do have to have different timing. You have to have different um, um, you, you have a different experience and roles can be reshaped significantly in the first few weeks of the regular season versus what maybe you know Joe Panucci or Jamie Pinzino, the pitching coach, thought they were going to have uh, when things got started. I mean, uh, um, was it Crumbly was the opening day starter, and I think he pitched like two-thirds of an inning over the weekend last weekend against Ryder. And they went to Carter Fink first out of the uh, uh, on, on Friday. And Fink was terrific. Fink hadn't given up a run in eight and a third yet. And then they went to, um, I don't remember went right after him, but uh, it was uh, Crooms. They went to Crooms after him, and Crooms was really good. And then, yeah, on Saturday, or on a Sunday, after Saturday got washed out, they played a doubleheader on Sunday, and they had some really good – there's some really good young arms in that staff that are mainly probably going to come out of the bullpen. I feel like Harpster uh, and Hyde are really, really good high-ceiling players. Hyde in particular – Hyde got the start uh, in the second game on Sunday and was able to just – I mean, he was pretty consistent, but he, he was able to just attack because the bats jumped on Ryder pretty early and, and built a nice cushion for him to be aggressive – while he was getting his work in. So I, I'm excited about where those young guys could go. Um, I think Derek McCarley is going to be fine as the closer. You know, the, the, there's But there's a lot of things that are to be determined that you want to try to simulate as much of as you can in the fall, but you really just can't. That what, what is it? Uh, no plan survives contact with the enemy. Or I think it was Mike Tyson put it, everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face. That's my favorite. Yeah, well, I, I I wasn't sure X Army if uh, if you were going to go one way or the other on that one, but uh, everybody does have a plan. So you get punched in the face, and when you go out and face the number nine team in the country, you go out and face a school from just up the mountain, you you get punched in the face. What happens? What is your plan? How do you adjust? What it, when Wagner 
punches ETSU in the face because ETSU is the lowest-ranked team that they will have faced in a weekend series all season, what happens? How does ETSU respond? How? What information does the staff get that allows them to reshape the team to be a little bit better in SoCon play? That's what these games are for, and that's what these games will achieve. And at least early on, like most things, if you can kind of get to the bullpen, right? I mean, that's in any level of baseball, if you can get to the pen, and with ETSU being able to earn the free bases, Wagner being able to give up free bases, and again, maybe some of it is a little tight for Wagner because they're facing top 15 talent, top 8 talent. And, but if ETSU can continue to get, you know, extra guys on base, and the one thing they've been able to do in the Jeff Williams era is drive those runs home. So if they continue to do that, plus you look at, I mentioned Cody Miller, he had a or something a little higher last year. Ashton King was yeah. uh, 285 or 290, somewhere in there. They get those two hitting with everyone else doing what they can do. You know, that's an ever-dangerous lineup when you get nine, all nine. There's really nobody. There's no easy outs, right, if you can get that. I know they rotate um, some catchers in here and there. But still, I think uh, if ETSU can get off, continue to hit the baseball, allow the pitchers to kind of figure out what's going to go on in there and who's going to – what roles and then the other hard part I think tomorrow the double headers are tough man. I mean, they can be yeah. especially when it's two nines that's a grind and it's, and it's really tough to sweep two nines and it's just the percentages say when you look at it and all that but you know it's not particularly going to be real warm tomorrow but chances of rain is going to be down but with ETSU off to that hot start I mean again um, loss of Tennessee a little disappointing midweek I think not that App State's bad but just the way it, it, they kind of lost can to play Wagner, and I think honestly because Wagner's off to a rough start, if ETSU can jump on him early, wouldn't shock me if ETSU uh, wouldn't uh, take the series and not sweep. That time, it's already begun. We already have a portal entrance. In the SoCon. And, and not one that's midseason, but a grad transfer who has gone in. Devin Butler, VMI. 6'2", guard, is in the portal. Uh, according to verbal commits, he went in last week. And he will, judging from his, his numbers against UNCG on Wednesday, he will see out his commitment to VMI his senior year and will be with the Kedets until their season concludes, at which point he will move forward with his career, his final year of eligibility, his graduate transfer. So he's got two games left. Uh, let's just, you know, I, I don't know. If Watkins doesn't play, there's two games left. Watkins That's fair. doesn't uh, yeah. play. Yeah. They got a shot, a puncher's chance of knocking somebody off. But if they're without Watkins, then he's got two games left. And, you know, I know there's a lot of people, well, I got him, why would you let him play? I'm like, he's graduating. They, they do not have a grad school. Mm-hmm. He, I'm assuming he discussed it with everybody. And he's got one more year of eligibility. He would like to go try to play something. He has started all 32 games this season for VMI, averaging 24 minutes, 6.3 points, 2.4 rebounds. Yeah. I, I 
think people got a problem with that. I, and I get there are yeah. certain aspects. I have no problem with that. I, I don't either. Um, they don't have a grad school. He's finishing out the last couple of games. I'm sure he discussed it with everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure they're like, well, I wish we could keep you. We can't, so good luck. So, I, to me, that, that's different than, you know, somebody leaving mid-January. Not even like Christmas break, but like, you know, mm-hmm. end of January. They walk in coach's office, hey, I'm out. And then they just pack up their stuff and leave. But to me, that's a little different. So I think my – yeah, that, that, that does happen. It's happened – a fair amount this year. I think Verbal Commits has 30 players listed as in the transfer portal, which is obviously not official, right, because it's not the transfer portal, but uh, that's what they have they're, listed. Yes, they are intending to transfer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or let it be known, which, I, which again, is that tampering that people reach out to them? I would assume it is. But let's be honest, that's those are loose conversations you have. Yeah. Uh, are you are you ready though for Exodus season? Because I feel like there's going to be a lot of this. Is to me this is the last year where we're going to see like the huge flurry of activity in the portal because this is the last chance to get COVID seniors. So I think you're going to see a lot of teams be very aggressive in the transfer portal over the next seven weeks, trying to get guys to fill out their rosters for the 2024-25 season knowing full well that this is this is it. Like, after this, I would expect, and there may be some D2 and D3 players that go in the port, but they're already going in. I, I don't think there will be as many of them as there are guys. Just there's going to be a lot fewer guys in the system, period, over the course of the next three, four years uh, than there are right now. Because of the COVID waiver, because so many players got the extra season of eligibility, uh, in the aftermath of that, that number, those the, that cohort of players is about to filter out of college basketball. What does that do to the portal? Does that maybe recalibrate again the value of high school players? Does that put a team like ETSU that gets a Makai Johnson and a Gabe Sisk, you know, late in their high school processes where you get a three-star to four-star or two three-stars, two four-stars, depending on who you ask, does that put them kind of back on the in the 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 front end of the market inefficiency? Call it. There's an inefficiency. There's an undervalued asset. High school players are an undervalued asset. Does that put a school like ETSU that's continued to recruit high schools, or even a school like VMI that's continued to recruit high schools? Uh, does that give them some semblance of an advantage in recruiting when high school recruiting becomes important again? I, mean, I would assume just taking. Average of three guys, probably say three guys at 300-something schools. You're talking about 1,000 players that are going to be off the board uh, moving forward because they won't have the sixth year. So right. if you just look at it that way, and not every coach person transfers that another, I get that, but you're still talking that's 1,000 people that had an opportunity, and a lot of more taking opportunities. Yes. To, and so how will – the portal is going to be the portal. It will just slim down. And I'm probably being conservative here. 400 names, but there were 1,600 last year. It may go down to 1,200. Which is still a significant decrease if you're a Division One mid-major trying to compete, because there are a lot. There are what 250 mid-majors. That's a pretty significant decrease in your available talent pool if you're trying to recruit 
you know, heavy on the portal. And, and teams will still recruit in the transfer portal. The transfers are here to stay. But I don't think it's going to be the San Diego State build an entire roster through the portal, turn it over every year, and then build a whole new one. You're going to have to be able to project some stability and continuity uh, in the future. And you're going to have to be able to retain a couple of your best players, which is how I think um, you know certain other pieces of this whole landscape dovetail into uh, the recruiting process. Pieces that we cannot uh, affiliate with. Like, we cannot have anything to do with those pieces. The I'll be excited because, I, again, I think the it was unfair kids missed an opportunity and how things are going in this season. But the I think the extreme overcorrection of just blatantly in every sport, everybody gets a year. And it was like, well, we were going to give these guys a year, so we got to give these guys a year. And, it kept, and I think it just it unintended consequences held or fell to the high school kids. Right. And because the portal is free whatever, some of the higher level college people have basically taken advantage of, hey, we've seen this guy at this school to said X. It's easier for me to get them. I still think that's probably for another year or two that's still going to happen. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think in three or four years I'll be real curious to see how people, and again, and I don't know, some stuff's going to change, and then if the branch, I mean, there's so many variables. But my prediction is, one, movement will continue to slightly decrease over the next few years and kind of settle down because I do think um, some of the horror stories of things happening, and I go, there are a lot of people like people talk to them say, hey, you want to go here, and that's not really right. Ah, you don't know, and they go there, and then they find out later, oh, no, no, they were they were alive. They really didn't have right. that. And so I think that's starting to um, show its ugly head. But I, I will, for one, be happy when the COVID years are over with for the simple reason of it would be more like it was intended the four years or five years to play four, and it's going to be that. It's not going to be a five or maybe a six or whatever it's going to be. For now. I, I think it, that's true. I mean, who knows? The major conferences may just try to uh, fight the NBA and NFL to start their own professional leagues at this point. I have yep. no idea. But at least for the next few years – I will be happy because there will be at least a little bit more of we can figure out how many years of eligibility somebody has minus the rare medicals, which were there anyways. They're already seven-year players in the medicals before COVID that had happened. Now, they were hard to come by. They're still hard to come by. And we hadn't had an eight until Jared Folks. Yeah, and and now I believe some guy's got a ninth that are finally finished. Yeah, the tight end. um, Oh, I can't remember his name. How much do you love college if you are going to be 27 and in college? Playing against 18, 19-year-olds. How much do you love football? All that's going to be pushed to the margins again is your point. Kind of like, uh, I'd like to push the rain to the margins and be done with it. Are you ready for some golf? I am ready for golf. Yeah, you're always ready for golf. I can, I can golf. You've got, a, you've got a golf bag from Matt Zaga that's sitting in your office. And every time I get ready to take it home, it rains, and I don't put it back in my truck. So fair, that's fair, because that thing's that thing's cool. <laughs> it was an awesome. That was really cool. when Jake Amos walked in and just handed you that. Uh, I was like, whoa, that's a neat little souvenir. 
Right. When he sent me the message, I'm like, hey, you're in the office, I got something for you. I'm thinking sleeve of balls, maybe a hat. Not, not that any of those are wrong. I would love both those. And he's walking with a bag and slams it down. And then obviously uh, what it represents and everything else, even though I'd appreciate it. But that, right. that obviously was a, a, a spectacular gift that's just sitting right there that I need to get it out of my office. But, again, it's been raining. You just want to do that you can do that. Yes, I just want to do it again. What? Uh, I can, I can, theoretically, I can do it whenever I want. Admiral has the con. Uh, that's, uh, I, I am ready for, I'm ready for the rain to obey, and I'm ready for Transfer Portal to be over with before it even starts, and uh, I'm ready for, I think, this podcast. How about that? All right, next week we will do a full tournament breakdown. Yes, so, uh, the women are, if everything goes chalk, the women are the four or the five, I believe they'd be the five, actually. And there is possibility they could be at three. A lot has to happen. But, I mean, a lot of weird stuff has happened in the conference. Men are the seven if they win or Mercer loses on Saturday. Four o'clock tip at Freedom Hall honoring Evie Asamoah and Jaden Parker. All right. That will be our final regular season broadcast. 3.30 radio coverage. Support. Yes. Yes. Support the artists that put on the radio product. I will. I, it will not hurt my feelings if you sync up Sandos with my with my call. Or you can have us both on, and then you get Jay and Keith on the Buccaneer Sports Network. How would you do a boat? Porque no los dos. Oh, you gotta be kidding me!